Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran, and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. And on this week's podcast, we're returning to our evening in the black box on June 29th, when the theme was Our Place. We've two stories for you coming up. The second you'll hear is from Oliver Jeffers, and Oliver is a renowned artist, illustrator, and writer. And he invited 10 by 9 to be part of the Art Place in Space project, and we were delighted. But first up, before Oliver, you'll hear Linda Sullivan. It was just Linda's second time at the 10 by 9 mic, so take it away, Linda. So yesterday I turned 40. (laughs) Thank you. They say this is where life begins. Well, if that's the case, what the hell was the last 40 years? I certainly don't want to start all over again. However, to look at my situation now, you'd be forgiven to think that it hadn't gone very far. I'm exactly where I was 35 years ago. Not in the black box, obviously, but where I'm living, in our place, our family home. Thinking back to that time when five-year-old me was introduced to the crazy idea that your home didn't always have to be your home. You could actually just pack up and find another one. Of course, it isn't always that easy, and, for, and it wasn't for my parents, who'd saved long and hard for the move. But I didn't see that side of it. All I saw was the upping and the moving. I was very excited as we were moving from the heart of West Belfast, the Falls Road, to the posh end. What I was about to lose in street cred, I was going to gain in swimming pools and ponies, or so I imagined. The reality was a plastic paddling pool and a My Little Pony. (laughs) But I was happy. I found friends and we ran the streets from morning to night, playing Rallyo, Two Man Hunt, Cribby, which has made a surprising comeback, I hear. Doing the backs and doing the fronts which basically just meant jumping through people's gardens, who I'm sure weren't too happy to see lines of children ruin their flower beds. And I was happy, until I wasn't. Until that dreaded day when the doctor called mummy in and told her that an unwanted guest had made herself at home in her left breast. What followed was eight years of back and forth with the big C. She tried her best to occupy as much of her childhood as she could. She was brave and full of spirit. When the priest came to visit, she would sit politely for a while, and she'd suddenly pull off her wig, flinging across the room, proclaiming, that's enough of that, I'm sweltered. (laughs) Poor Benny Hill, as we irreverently called the parish priest, as he did look very much like the comedian, without the sense of humor, unfortunately. So Benny Hill didn't know where to look. Yes, there were still times of happiness, lying beside her on the bed, laughing at some silly joke, teasing my daddy when he was getting changed. I see the moon and the moon sees me, we giggled, going to Butlins during a good spell. School was also my happy place. I'd found a friendship group that weren't the bullies nor the bullied. We were inoffensively geeky, and all we did was laugh. When home was heavy, the lightness of school was my saving grace. And then, when I was just shy of 18, she couldn't hold on anymore. 
She left us from that bed in which we'd left. My father was a man of his times. He'd relished the life of working hard for his family, handing in the money and having the rest managed by his wife. But that life was taken from him and he spent the rest of the one he has left mourning it. A year later, I find myself somehow in the role of a housewife, with my two sisters both moved out, and the woman's work, as Daddy would say, fell to me. I broke down to my sister one night after we'd had a few drinks. I don't give a shit how many cans of beans are in the fucking cupboard. I never want to talk about baked beans again. To this day, I still can't eat baked beans. I resented the chores, probably because I resented the fact that she was gone. The house that no longer felt like home was closing in on me day by day. So when I finished my degree, I ran as fast and as far away as I could. By plane to Korea, I had upped and moved again. I felt guilty leaving daddy and my younger brother, who was still a teenager and probably had more reason than I to be resentful. But guilt was the price I chose to pay for freedom. For the first time in a long time, I felt light again. I spent the next decade living and traveling in different continents, the thrill of new places hiding my severed roots. But eventually, inevitably, I missed having roots. I felt the lack like an amputated limb. So I left my life in Peru at this stage and made my way back to the island in which I was born. And eventually, inevitably, back to our place, our family home. It frightened me to go back, thinking I'd be sucked back into the vortex of sadness and dependency. But as I looked up at Divis Mountain, in whose shadow our home sits, I realized that the darkness, Divis, do, is part of my story. And it has made me into the very different person I am now, as I sit in the very same place. Yes, I now sleep where she died, in that space under the built-in wardrobes. But it's also where she lived, where she laughed, and where she loved. When I first moved back in, I journeyed through the house and surprised myself by finding happy memories tucked into corners. The Sunday roasts, the Saturday night salads, easy on the salad, Friday's butterballs, the midnight feasts. I'm starting to see that to make me happy, you only have to feed me. By remembering and re-cherishing, I feel I'm freeing the house of my judgment, lifting it out of the heavy box and placing it in the, into the open, where all this history is seen and appreciated for what it was. So my roots, some thorny, some smooth, some bright and some blue, began to tentatively reach out again. Yet ironically, when I was looking down at my roots, someone came along and stole my heart. Maybe the healing from the house had cleared a bit of space for the new. We were both nervous on our first date. He told me a long story. He told me a long story about a rubber penis <laughs> that his son had placed on his teacher's chair. He even mimicked the principal's unveiling of said penis when he was called to the school. I, in return, confessed I was a Garth Brooks fan. 
Somehow we both wanted to see each other again. Fast forward a year and we're looking at houses. We knew we'd find the one when we went to view it and we both had an urgent urge to go to number two. It <laughs> it's fate, we declared. Our bodies are telling us this is ours. The strong coffee we had drank a half an hour before had nothing to do with it, of course. And it's our dream home, actually, and hopefully the last our place I'll be upping and moving to. Thank you. A warm welcome for Oliver Jeffers. This story all takes place in one room in one day. Um, it was about a year ago, and I was doing my usual last-minute book deadline push because I always seem to leave everything until an urgent burst is necessary, even with homework, you know, last second, probably in the bus on the way in. And I'm in my studio at the bottom of our garden here in Northern Ireland, and I've been working about a week of very long days and nights wrapping up this book. It's about a, a girl who is convinced that her house is haunted, but she can't seem to find them, and she's sort of stuck looking for them, and they seem to be deliberately hiding from her. Um, the book is due on Monday, and this is Sunday. The next morning, I'm also due not just to hand in this book, but to fly to New York City for two weeks, uh, so it's really zero margin of error time. And I had lost a chunk of time the, the previous day, because a, a very dear friend who lives in another country had been acting erratically and picking fights with other dear friends for seemingly no reason. I mean, you know, real real nasty stuff. And, and uh, there, was, there was damage being done and uh, nothing like a little damage control to clear the mind. So it's Sunday afternoon and I have at least another eight hours, 10 hours possibly of work to do to finish this book. The kids are off school as it's a Sunday and they're getting bored and they like coming down to the bunker, which is what my wife calls the studio at the bottom of the garden, to see what I'm up to and to make their own art projects. And, and normally this is fine, even lovely. Uh, but today they're getting underfoot because, you know, zero margin of error. Uh, and I keep trying to shoot them away. And my wife is a little bit distracted with some of the lingering damage control from the previous day's text trauma. Um, and in the midst of this, at the bottom of the garden, um, a strange man who, who turns out to be a neighbor from around the corner and his daughter, they, they approach us with some flyers. It turns out that they have a cat that's been missing for a week and they're offering a reward. Uh, perfect distraction for the kids. It's like, all right, guys, there's this wee cat who's lost. Um, her name is Jewel. Would you help the neighbors find her? Um, and off they go, ushering them out. Uh, and there's a reward, I remind them. You know, even more pep in their step. Uh, so I hear them walk off and, Jewel, they call under bins and behind trees. and. Uh, Jewel! Uh, I've, I'm not sure I've ever heard of a cat that comes when it's called, but they don't know that. <laughs> so I'm finally in a good clear run at the home straight of this book uh, when I get a text through. I'm like, oh no. But it's from my wife. She's like, ah, oh, I think I know what happened to Jewel. And she shows me a post from this local Facebook group and it says, does anyone know of anyone missing a cat? As unfortunately we found some roadkill outside our house this afternoon. They live nearby, but in another direction, and Suzanne asks if I still have the phone number from the missing cat flyer. 
Um, although it's hard to identify the likeness between the two pictures, given the, the speed at which it was likely hit. Uh, but she feels that she should let this owner know. So that, that distraction aside, I, I get into finishing the home of this book, and, and I'm off on a, on a good push. I'd love to get finished by midnight, because I still need to pack for my New York trip the next day. So I'm texting another friend about the previous day's drama, uh, and disclose to him that it was let slip that actually this person was on was, was newly medicated for a mental health issue, and I'm hoping that's not the reason what's going on. What, he responds, it absolutely is. My sister had the same diagnosis prescription a few years ago, and she became extremely volatile and suicidal. Look, he says, just check in with her partner. So I do, just to make sure all was okay, and, and I don't really hear back right away. So I commence wrapping up the book, and just as I'm cleaning my brushes and ready to wrap up the studio for a couple of weeks, uh, I get a phone call from the partner that I try to contact who's in tears. They come home to find a suicide note and the initial commencement of an attempted overdose. So I managed to get them both on speakerphone. And on the other hand, I'm texting another very dear friend, friend the, the, uh, the first person I would call in an emergency, and he lives near-ish them. And I have him on standby in case he needs to intervene. So he drops everything, hovers nearby with a, a suicide hotline. He knows them both, and, but is keeping a, a safe but close distance. So growing up in a, in a pretty rough school, I learned to be able to talk my way into and out of most things as needed. And for the next six hours, every skill set of negotiation, empathy, support are utilized as I talk with them in concentric circles away from and eventually down from the ledge. I'm chain smoking as I go to calm my own nerves. Eventually, there are tears, there's expressions of love, remorse, and promises to go to sleep and calm down. Me armed with a little bit of knowledge from this other friend's experience and knowing that my other friend is, is very nearby. So I put the phone down, and by this stage, the sun is coming up. Uh, I hang up, and I'm frazzled, relieved, confused by what has just happened. I'm exhausted and wide awake at the same time. I don't want to wake up my wife and kids with my smelly, smoky breath, as the kids will probably have migrated into our bed by this time by brushing my teeth in the sink next to our, our bed. And, and, and I remember there's a spare toothbrush set under the sink in the bathroom by the studio, so I go and get it. And as I open the double doors under the sink, my first thought is, that's weird that someone left a coat under there. And just as that thought is manifesting, the hood of this black coat lifts up and two green eyes stare at me. Dear fucking God. The shock is almost too much for me to bear at that exact moment, and I don't immediately connect it with the picture of Jewel from the missing cat posters. You know, as I think from sleep deprivation and uh, is starting to hallucinate. But when the penny drops, I realize that I'm not quite in a position to deal with this right now at 6 a.m. after a long bout of bookmaking and suicide watch. So I leave the cupboard door under the sink open for it and the studio ajar and retire to bed. There's a cat under the sink in the studio, I mutter to my wife as I sort of slip under the covers just you know, half an hour before everybody else has got to get up for school. She goes down to check after the kids have gone and looks in the sink under the kitchen down in the studio. No cat, no sign of a cat. And she wakes me up to see if I'm okay, that the hallucinations are just sleep deprivation. And, and I was like, no, 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 not, this, not the kitchen, under the sink in the bathroom. So we both go down. And then from the evidence that's left there, we gather the cat must have been stuck under there for at least a week. 
given the amount of hair and cat urine soaked up into the toilet paper that's stashed out there. And turns out my assistant had smelt it a few days before and just thought my hygiene standards had dramatically slipped <laughs> in the intense period of a deadline. And to her credit, she did not make a deal out of it. But So I told my wife the story of the evening before and realizing that I was off to the airport soon, like soon, it occurred to me that perhaps I saved two lives that night. So Suzanne explained the highly edited turn of events to Jules' owners, and, and uh, turns out that she returned home later that day. And the best part is that my kids got the reward. <laughs> Two cream eggs. And uh, with hindsight, I'm not really sure it was worth the effort. Thanks so much, Oliver. And thanks, too, for asking Ten by Nine to be part of your project and for giving us the title for this week's podcast. And Linda, belated happy birthday and best wishes in your new home. Thanks too for the poo tip for when we're next house hunting. And that's it for this podcast. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Also email, which is story at 10by9.com or via our website, 10by9.com. Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes. We'll be returning to the Black Box on July 27th. The theme for that is holiday. So get in touch if you've got a story and come along if you're in the neighbourhood. Thanks as always to the lovely people at the Black Box, the wonderful people behind Art Place and Space, our fantastic audience and all our storytellers, but especially Linda Sullivan and Oliver Jeffers. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now... Bye-bye.